Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Have you ever wondered about the different sizes of saw handles? Are you looking for an inexpensive hand tool friendly wood? Do you have any hand tools that you absolutely can't live without? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 45 of the show for March 13th, 2019. Before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to thank all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. And thanks to two new patrons this week, Ray Defterios and Borgia Fernandez Sierra for signing up to support the show. Listener support helps to keep the show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. If you're already a patron, again, I thank you. And be sure to head over to the Patreon post page to submit your questions and requests for this month's patron Q&A video that will be coming out at the end of the month. So there's been a little bit of a excitement in my shop recently. I just got a new lathe. Um, I had previously, years ago, I had built a um, spring pole lathe, but um, that gave me problems with uh, an old hockey injury um, that this, the spring pole lathe tended to aggravate. So, uh, so I had gotten rid of, I donated the spring pole lathe years ago to the museum that I volunteered at. And up until just this past weekend, uh, I had just been going down to the school where I teach, um, to use the lathe in their shop when I needed to turn something. But, uh, it was getting kind of inconvenient because they're open studios only open limited hours during the week. So and they're not open on weekends for open studio because they have classes and other things going on. So um, I ended up getting a, a midi lathe. It's just it's a Rikon um, midi lathe. I think it's the uh, the 70-220 VSR, um, and that's what I ended up going with. And uh, it has been great so far. I've been turning some legs for the commission that I'm working on, and it has been working out awesome. So let's get into our questions for this week. Our first one comes from our new patron, Ray Defterios, uh, and he's got a voicemail on sizing saw handles. Hi, Bob. It's Ray from South Africa here. Um, I wondered if you could help with some advice on saw handles. I've got a 22-inch panel saw, uh, distant D8, and I really like the fit of the, um, the handle. Um, I also have some Sandvik saws, um, and I think I read somewhere that they oversized because of working with gloves, but for whatever reasons, the, the handles um, really are, are, are too large for my hands. I was contemplating making a copy of the Distant D8 and using that on the on the 24-inch Sandvik uh, rip saw, um, but I heard online that there's advantages to having a slightly looser fit with a rip saw and that it's more comfortable. Um, it sounds like in terms of changing positions, etc. I wonder if you could give any advice on that. If you were going to make a handle for a 24 inch rip saw, would you size that in the same way as a panel saw or would you lie, leave some 
slightly bigger tolerances. Thanks. So leaving room to, to move your hand and shift your grip. Well, if you heard it on the internet, it must be true, right? Um, I think a lot of this just comes down to personal preference. For me, I like my saw handles to fit my hand perfectly. Uh, if you look at older saw handles, saws from the 18th century into the first half of the 19th century, um, what you'll notice is that the handles tended to be quite a bit smaller than the later saws. And uh, some folks have, have guessed that that's because um, historically people were smaller than they are today and their hands were smaller. And while there may be some truth to that, I mean, that the jury's really still out on, the, on that, whether that's really true or just a, a myth. Um, what I think was true was that their handles were sized to fit three fingers in the grip, and that's it. Um, I've used quite a number of uh, old style saw handles from this period of time, from the from the 17th, uh, sorry, the, the 18th century into the early 19th century. They're all handles that I made based on scaled drawings or scaled photographs of antique saws in different museum collections. And what I found is that every one of those saws is an absolute perfect fit for every operation, ripping, cross-cutting, joinery saws, whatever. They were sized so you could get three fingers in that saw handle and nothing more. The later saws, when we start to see manufacturers like Distin and, and Atkins and Sandvik and, and all these saw manufacturers in the U.S. that start to come on board in the late 19th century into the 20th century, they were manufacturing saws for a wide variety of trades um, and people. So my theory is that the earlier saws were, they were made um, by, by a company that you know, sold saws. Um, and the idea, just like any other tool that was sold during that time, 17th and, and uh, the 18th and early 19th century, the idea was that the saw was sent as a, a quote-unquote kit, and it was up to the craftsmen to customize that saw the way that they wanted. Um, chisel handles were off, were typically sold unhandled. Ch uh, chisels, I mean, were, were typically sold unhandled, and it was up to the craftsmen to make their own handles to fit their hand. Um, hand planes, you know, they were all made of wood, but if you look at plane handles from the same period of time, they also tended to be a little bit smaller, meant for gripping with three fingers only. Um, and I think the expectation was that the craftsman would alter the grip to fit their hand. In the late 19th century into the 20th century, that kind of goes away. Everybody wants to buy a tool that's ready to go out of the box. Um, and most of your hand tools, your hand saws, hand planes, are now being used more by site carpenters and uh, finished carpenters and not in wood shops. There's a lot of machine use, you know, uh, factories coming on board after the Industrial Revolution into in the late 19th, uh, 19th century. And the saws just aren't being used quite as much in that shop 
um, factory type setting because they just don't need to. So instead, a lot of the the saws are being made for carpenters, site carpenters that are building houses and bridges and, uh, you know, barns and factories. And they don't want to be bothered customizing the handles of their saws. So instead, these companies make the saws bigger. They make the holes where your fingers go larger so that they fit a wider variety of person. So someone with big hands can would not have to alter the size of that saw handle. The problem then becomes people with small hands, your hand kind of feels lost in there. Uh, my recommendation is if you're going to make a new handle, make it to fit your hand specifically. Look at um, how big your hands are. Look at that the standard three finger grip and make that um, handle no bigger than it needs to be to fit your three fingers um, and hold the saw comfortably. The saw should the handle should not have a lot of room to move your hand around. If there's room to move your hand around inside that hole, um, it's you're you're going to have inconsistencies in the way that you saw. The handle should be nicely fit to your hand. So if you're happy with the size of your panel saw handle, then I would say use that as a template and go with that. Don't necessarily go with these giant saw handles from the, the late 19th century. Um, yes, some of them were often designed so that you could get a thumb in there as well for a two-handed sawing grip. But again, these were people that were working on job sites, um, doing carpentry work, working with very large timbers. These were not people that were building furniture with hand saws when these saws were designed. Um, so I don't find those saws um, any more comfortable. I don't like my hand to move around in the grip too much. Um, and I would suggest that if you have a saw that you find comfortable, use that handle pattern for all of your saws, whether it's a rip saw, a crosscut saw, panel saw, whatever. Any of your large um, unbacked saws, use that handle pattern because that's going to be the most comfortable for you. And if you go larger, it's not going to feel right. Um, so use the, the handle that feels comfortable to you. And as for your joinery saws, same thing. If you find a handle that feels comfortable to you, go with that style handle or similar um, because that's going to be the most comfortable for you in use. So our next question is an email from Mark Hollock. Mark says, what is a hand tool friendly hardwood for beginners? I know walnut and mahogany, but they're expensive. I've used pine and poplar to build toolboxes and a tool chest. It was good practice and it's okay when it's painted, but I spent a lot of time and money on milk paint and a top coat. I'm looking for a workable hardwood with a simple oil finish. So Mark, uh, I think you're going to be a little bit disappointed with my answer, um, but there's not really going to be um, an inexpensive hardwood that's going to you know, be, I, I think, what you're looking for um, in an oil finish. Um, if you just kind of, you know, I'm assuming when you say inexpensive, you're talking about things like pine and poplar prices, uh, because you mentioned that in your email. And, you know, most of the time, pine and poplar, you're looking at somewhere around $2 a board foot. Well, if you go and look at most hardwood price lists that are published online for um, for lumber dealers, and, and I'll use uh, Groff and Groff in, in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania as an example, because it's one of the lumber yards that I used to frequent uh, when I lived in New Jersey. Um, 
you can pull up their price list online. And if you just go down the price list, you're going to find that there really is no other lumber that's priced around where pine and poplar are priced. Now, pine and poplar are great hand tool hardwoods, and you've already mentioned those. Um, I think they're fantastic. I like the look of natural pine. Um, poplar can, can be okay natural. I, I prefer to paint it. Um, you can dye po uh, poplar as well. And poplar can kind of give you a nice look when it's dyed first and then finished with a, a clear top coat. Um, and if you want a, an example of that, um, check out the series that I did on building a Porringer Top tea table on YouTube. Uh, I used poplar for that uh, because the goal was to um, maybe have other folks try to build along. And, and I wanted to give them a, an easy wood to work with and inexpensive wood. Um, but as a result, I needed to dye it in order to, to give it a decent look. Um, but you can dye or stain poplar and it looks pretty decent and put a top coat on that. But if you're looking for something, a, a type of wood that you're just going to oil and get the look of, you know, walnut or mahogany or cherry, um, then I'm afraid you're going to have to be looking at walnut and mahogany and cherry. And really, um, when you look at the prices of hardwoods, Walnut and mahogany and cherry are really not all that expensive um, based on where you can go from there. When you start to get into some of the curly woods and the more exotic woods, um, you know, you can really start to get quite expensive. Maple and oak, you know, they're going to run in, you know, around the, the four to five dollar a board foot mark. And, uh, and you know that that's pretty normal for most of those woods. You might be able to get oak for, you know, three to four dollars a board foot. But I wouldn't consider kiln dried oak or kiln dried maple really hand tool friendly woods. They're hard, uh, and they're tough to work with hand tools. Um, soft maple is not a bad wood to work with hand tools. Um, it's not the prettiest wood, so I'm not sure that that's what you're looking for to just put an oil finish on. It's certainly not um, not an ugly wood. Um, and, and I wouldn't mind putting an oil finish on it, but I'm not a big fan of really light woods um, in, in furniture. So um, I tend to use soft maple for things like drawer sides. Um, I don't use too much maple in, in the work that I do because I'm not really a huge fan of really light furniture. Um, you know, other options, there's really not going to be too many in terms of hand, hand tool friendly. Um, Polonia, if you can get that, that's very hand tool friendly. That that's kind of um, a lot of uh, Japanese toolboxes. You know, you'll you'll see made out of Polonia, um, but still, you're looking at four dollars a board foot or, or more for that. Um, I've heard sassafras is not a bad hand tool wood. I have not had a, ever had a chance to use it myself, but that usually again runs in the um, three to four dollars a board foot range. Um, walnut is really, I mean, in my experience, not all that unreasonable. Sometimes you can get it for $5 a board foot. Uh, it looks like these days, uh, for, for first and seconds walnut, you're running about $7 a board foot, um, which still for walnut in, in my opinion is really, um, not that, not that bad. Um, Honduran mahogany, you know, true mahogany is going to be quite expensive, these days, you're probably looking at, you know, um, $10 a board foot, $7, $8 a board foot. Um, you can often get 
African mahogany a little cheaper. Um, that can sometimes run five to six dollars a board foot. So an African mahogany isn't isn't bad as a hand tool wood. Uh, it can be a little ornery sometimes. It, it tends to have lots of reversing grain, but then again, so can genuine mahogany. So um, you just kind of have to be picky with your boards. Um, but beyond that, you know, you start to get into more expensive woods and, and you're going to be, I'm afraid you're going to be looking at five to six dollars a board foot when you get out of the pine and poplar area. Uh, there's not going to be much that's really hand tool friendly until you get into that walnut, cherry, mahogany range. And then, like I said, you're looking at five, six, seven dollars a board foot. So uh, if you're looking for inexpensive, I would say stick with the pine and poplar, stick with the paint, um, and or or go with a natural pine. I really like the look of natural pine, so uh, you know don't discount just finishing uh, a, a pine piece naturally. I think it really looks nice. Um, and like I said, with the poplar, uh, you can always dye it, and that's really not um, not bad at all. Uh, you know, if you can you can dye it lots of different colors to look like cherry or uh, not so much walnut, but it can uh, it can look like like cherry pretty uh, pretty easily with the right dye. So, and it's nice and easy to work with. So I would say uh, stick with the poplar, maybe dye it and put a clear coat on that. Um, the pine or, or otherwise stick with your milk paint. Uh, I think that's gonna be your best bet. Otherwise, you know, look into to spending that five to $6 a board foot uh, for some really nice wood. So our next question comes from Hugo and he wants to know about creating a rabbit, uh, how to create a rabbit dovetail sided box uh, without the rabbit or grooves showing when everything is closed. Uh, so hiding, hiding the groove uh, in the bottom of a box. So I'm assuming you're not talking about drawers because that's that's real easy because uh, you slide the, you typically slide the bottom of the drawer in from the back. So you so a box with dovetailed sides. Now there's several ways that you can go about this and it really is going to depend on uh, the look that you're going for. The easiest way to hide a rabbit or um, or groove in the bottom of a box where the, the drawer where the box bottom is going to sit, if you want to dovetail all four corners, is to use half blind dovetails like would, you would use on the front of a drawer box. Um, your pins would be half blind, they, and they, that would be the lap, and your tailboards would be regular tailboards. You would make the, um, if you're doing a groove, you can move the groove up so that the bottom of the groove, the whole groove sits within the bottom tail. And when you assemble that box with the half blind, uh, half blind dovetails for on all four corners, the groove would sit inside the half blind pin and be invisible. Uh, for a rabbit, you'd have to do things a little bit differently. If you're going to do a rabbit where it's right on the edge of the board, what you have to do is lay out your dovetails so that instead of starting with a half pin on the bottom of the box, you're starting with a half tail. And this really isn't going to uh, affect the structural integrity of the box at all. But you need that half tail on the bottom of the box in order to be able to hide the rabbit. Um, so 
if you want to if you want to use a rabbit cut your half blind dovetails lay out your half blind dovetails so that you're starting with a half tail on the bottom of the box instead of a half pin and that will again hide your rabbit inside the socket of the half blind dovetail what if you don't want to do half blind dovetails and you want to do through dovetails on the corners well again you've got a couple of options the first is to make the tail that is going to hide the pin uh, the, the groove or the rabbit half thickness so what do I mean by that well if your board is three quarters of an inch let's say and you lay out um, your pins and tails on the corner of your box for that three quarters of an inch thickness and let's say your groove or rabbit is three-eighths of an inch deep for your bottom tail whether it's um, whether you're going to do a groove or whether you're going to do a rabbit um, you want to make that bottom tail half thickness so you want to make the, the tail three-eighths of an inch thick instead of three-quarters of an inch thick essentially what you're doing is you're paring away the thickness of the tail down to the bottom of the groove so if your groove is a quarter of an inch deep then you're going to pare away the material in the thickness of that tail so that your tail is a half inch thick so you're taking a quarter inch away if your groove is three-eighths of an inch deep then you're going to pair three-eighths of an inch of that bottom tail away so that the tail is paired down to the bottom of the groove if you're using a groove again you can um, start with a half pin if you want and just move the groove up to the point where it's buried inside of the tail if you want to use rabbits again you're gonna to have to do the same thing when you do your layout you're going to have to start with a half tail at the bottom so that bottom tail and bottom pin are going to be different than the rest it's the bottom tail is going to be thinner it's not going to be as thick because you have to pair the material away to the bottom of the groove so you'll have a thinner tail at the bottom in addition you're going you're because you're pairing the um, you're making that tail thinner you're going to have to make your pin that's going to house that tail not quite as deep so again if all the rest of your pin sockets are three quarters of an inch deep that bottom one is not going to be three quarters of an inch deep it's going to match the thickness of your bottom tail and again the thickness of that bottom tail is going to depend on the depth of your rabbit or your groove so that's one way you can um, arrange your your pins and tails so that you can hide the groove and use through dovetails um, again with that when you look at the at the um, box from the tail side you'll see all nice through tails when you look at it from the pin side you're going to see one pin at the bottom that's thinner so maybe that doesn't bother you maybe you're not crazy about that look um, if you don't want to see that that thinner pin then another method would be to make uh, mitered tails and pins at the bottom uh, and if you if you make a mitered joint at just at the bottom of the box you can do dovetails at the top half of the joint and do a miter at the bottom half of the joint where the rabbit or um, or groove is and the miter would hide the rabbit or groove you can do full um, blind dovetails or full full blind mitered dovetails 
Um, and again, that would hide the rabbit or groove. Um, the only other option you really have other than alter, altering that joinery um, is going to be to make stopped grooves. So if you really want to do through dovetails, um, you want the dovetails and pins to be all the same thickness um, from top to bottom of the box. The only way that you're going to be able to hide that rabbit or groove is going to be to make a stopped rabbit or a stopped groove. Um, and you know that that you're just going to have to do with the chisel. You won't be able to do that with a, a plow plane. You won't be able to make your rabbit or groove um, completely through the edge of the board. And it's just going to take a little bit more work. Um, one other option that you could also consider would be to use um, what are called slips. And these are separate pieces that would get glued to the inside of the drawer box or, or of the box that would house the drawer bottom. So for example, let's say your, your box bottom is going to be you know, a piece of quarter inch material. You might make your slips, um, I don't know, let's say a half inch by three quarters of an inch, a piece of wood and then you would plow a quarter inch deep groove in that slip. You could then miter those slips or, or just butt join them um, together and put your groove in there. And what you have is this little frame with your drawer bottom, with your box bottom in it. And then you take the that whole assembly and glue that into the bottom of your box. So you have a, essentially a, a frame and panel that gets glued in place to the interior surface of the drawer of the box sides. Um, so just Google drawer slips um, and you'll get lots of photos and, and uh, um, descriptions of what drawer slips are and how they're used. And that's another option that you could do to add your drawer bottom separately from the sides. And it actually um, has a side benefit for small boxes where um, it gives you, you don't have to worry about um, making the drawer the box sides too fragile by plowing a groove in them so using the slips allows you to add that bottom and add, keep a little bit of extra material in there for some extra support so there's a bunch of options for you for hiding the groove or the rabbit in the bottom of a box so our last question today comes from ed savensky he says i inherited a marking gauge a marking mortise engage from my late uncle all the pins are pretty worn, and I wonder if there's a way to replace them. There really isn't much left to sharpen, so if your answer is no, I'll just consider it a keepsake. So, um, Ed, there is, you can replace those pins. Um, in fact, there, you might have a hard time, but there should still be a couple of dealers selling replacement marking gauge pins. You, you, you can buy them. I know you used to be able to buy them anyway. The real trick is going to be getting the old ones out. Hopefully, you have enough meat left on them, even though they're not really sharpenable. Hopefully, there's enough meat left on them that you can get a pair of pliers on them um, or get a, uh, you know, like a, a vice grip or something like that on the what's remaining of those pins to be able to pull them out. They should just be in their friction fit. So you should be able to pull them out of the beam of the, of the marking gauge and then just insert new pins. Um, and like I said, you actually may be able to find new pins online. I know a couple of years ago, there were still a couple dealers that were still selling replacement pins. 
if you can't find replacement pins, um, you can certainly make them from uh, finished nails. You can make, you can buy um, O1 tool steel stock um, round rod relatively inexpensively in such in, in a size that's that small. Um, you can go to to your local hardware store. Um, I went to uh, my local Lowe's not too long ago, and I found um, a, a little package of hard wire, um, hardened wire. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what it's sold for, um, but it's essentially a, a hardened wire that files quite nicely and makes nice marking gauge pins. And the, the little package, I think, is 2 or $3, um, and it comes with wire in a couple different diameters. And it's a, like I said, it's a hardened wire. Um, so it's, it's almost like a spring steel and made really good marking gauge pins. Um, so you can look there as well and make your own pins. If you can't get the old pins out of the existing gauge, that creates a bit of a problem. Um, what I would suggest would be to use, if you can't get them out, would be to use a drill press and drill them out. Um, you're going to have to secure the marking gauge beam somehow. If you have um, like a, a drill press vise for a drill press, you can put the, the gauge in there um, and line everything up and, and drill the pins out that way. Now, they, they're usually fairly soft in, the, in those old gauges, so you should be able to drill them out fairly easily with a, a modern high-speed steel twist bit. Um, you could also use like a hand screw and clamp that to your drill press table. Um, if you don't have a drill press, you're gonna you're probably gonna have a hard time. You might be able to try to to punch them a little bit deeper so that you at least have a hole to start with, um, and then maybe that'll help to guide your drill bit if you're using a hand drill of some sort. Um, but again, you're gonna want to clamp the beam in place and, and be really careful. Um, trying to do it by hand. I would suggest a drill press if you have a drill press. Um, but um, you can do it and drill those pins out by hand, but um, it's going to take quite a bit of, of care um, and planning uh, to be able to do that. So um, if you can pull them out, no problem. Um, if you have to drill them out, you know, it might take a little bit more um, thought to uh, make sure you can secure the beam properly and, and drill nice and straight without that drill bit wandering uh, away from the existing pin, especially if you've got um, some brass in that gauge on that beam. You don't want to mar up the existing brass. So maybe a center punch to punch that pin down uh, and give your, your drill bit a place to bite and, uh, and be able to drill that old pin out. So that's going to do it for our questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is somewhat of a, a counterpoint to, uh, to last show's main topic. So last time I talked about the hand tools that I don't need. This time I want to talk about the hand tools that I wouldn't be without. And some of these are going to be uh, pretty obvious, um, but I'll talk about a, a couple of, uh, of options for some of them because uh, I, I think some of them you might be surprised at. 
so the first one is going to be a good square. Um, obviously, you know, you can't do good precise joinery and good precise work without at least one good square. Um, most, most people would recommend, you know, like a start combination square. Um, I'm not that fussy. I know I can make a wooden square every bit as accurate as I would need for woodworking. So I'm going to say any good square square, whether it be a start combination square or a wooden square that you made yourself or a uh, old, you know, uh, rosewood handled metal bladed tri-square, any good square will work. What's important is that you know how to check that square to make sure that it is square and that you are able to fix it if it's not square. Um, and this can be actually harder to do um, with squares like the start combination square um, than it is for the old tri-squares or wooden tri-square. So um, any square square, but Again, make sure you know how to test it and make sure you know how to fix it if it's not square. My second tool that I would not be without would be a good marking gauge. Um, and again, this does not have to be a, a tight mark or a, you know a, a real expensive marking gauge. Um, I've got a video on making a French style marking gauge on YouTube that is one of my most popular videos. Um, I still use those French style marking gauges. Um, I have some in my uh, period tool kit. Um, I have, you know, I, I have a tight mark as well. Um, and I use them both interchangeably. That, uh, that French style marking gauge is, is still a great tool. Um, so no reason you can't make your own marking gauge, but I definitely would not be without one. My third hand tool that I wouldn't be out would be a knife and not necessarily a marking knife. Um, in fact, I find if I had to be with only one knife, if I, if I had to just pick this one tool to be on my, on my list, it would actually be a Sloyd knife. Um, the reason for that is you can use it for a lot more tasks than a simple uh, like spear point marking knife. Now, my favorite marking knife is actually a, a 19th century style striking knife um, that has a, a beveled knife, uh, a single beveled knife on one end and an all point on the other end. But um, if I couldn't have that and a Sloyd knife, I would say um, I would take the Sloyd knife over that marking knife because I could use that Sloyd knife to carve with, um, I could use it to whittle pegs with, there's so much that you can do with a simple Sloyd knife and you can use it as a marking knife as well. Um, so if I could only have a single knife in my kit, it would be a Sloyd knife. My fourth tool that I would not be without is a sash saw. Um, and, and this is one that may have some, get some eyes raised. Um, most Work, you know, most most people are going to break down their lumber um, not using large hand saws. Um, if you are, you know, then you might want to have uh, one large, add one large hand saw to your your list as well. 
because uh, a sash saw might be a little bit difficult to break down your lumber with. But um, if you've got other ways of breaking down your lumber, if you've got a circular saw, if you've got a jigsaw, if you have a band saw or a chop saw or a table saw, um, you know, all those tools can be used to break down rough lumber. In fact, if I was going to pick just one of those, uh, it would be the jigsaw because you could do so much with it. You can rip with it, you can cross cut with it, you can cut curves with it. Um, and there are all different kinds of blades that you can get for that jigsaw. So if you're not the type that's going to um, rip and cross cut your boards with a, a large handsaw, uh, a jigsaw is a, a good versatile choice for that. But Again, most people are going to have other options for breaking down rough lumber. And let's be honest, that's really what the large crosscut saw and large rip saw are for. They're for roughing out parts to size. They're not joinery saws. So if you've got another way of getting your parts to size, what you really need, or what I, at least what I really need, is some way to cut that joinery. And if all I've got is a jigsaw for breaking down rough stock, Jigsaw is not going to do it for cutting joinery. You need some type of joinery saw. And in my opinion, the sash saw is the one saw that can do it all. You can uh, make precision cross cuts to cross cut your boards, your, your rough cut boards to final length. You can cut shoulders for tenons. You can cut cheeks on tenons and, and half laps and bridle joints. You can cut dovetails with a sash saw. There's really no joinery that you can't do with a sash saw. And if you use a hybrid filing that's kind of halfway between a, a dedicated cross cut and a dedicated rip, you can make any cut with that saw. Cross cut, rip, any kind of joinery with that one single sash saw. Uh, something in a 14 inch range with about a, you know, a three inch cutting depth. Um, it, it is the universal joinery saw. It's the jack plane of joinery saws. And it is the one handsaw that I absolutely would not be without. I would long give up my dovetail saw before I gave up my sash saw. So the next, uh, hand tools that I wouldn't be without, and, and I'm going to put two in here. Um, I'm going to cheat a little bit. Um, it's a quarter and a five-eighth inch bench chisel. So these are the two sizes of bench chisel that I use the absolute most. Um, now, I have other sizes, and I will reach for them if my quarter or my five-eighth aren't quite as sharp as I would like them to be, and I'm too lazy to sharpen them. But 90% of the time, I'm reaching for the quarter or I'm reaching for the five-eighths. And it all just comes down to how big the area is that I'm chopping with that bench chisel. Um, if I'm chopping in between dovetails, I'm usually reaching for the quarter inch. If I'm chopping in between pins of dovetails, um, you know, to make the sockets for the tails to go into, those are usually quite a bit larger and I'm usually reaching for uh, a chisel about the size of the 5 8 inch chisel. Those two chisels can also do yeoman's work, you know, pairing shoulders um, on your, your tenons and cleaning out the insides of mortises. A lot of my mortises are uh, a quarter of an inch wide. So that quarter inch chisel um, can be used for cleaning up the ends of mortises. If you're gonna drill your mortises out first and then 
um, and then you know just chop the ends square. Uh, so much work the quarter and the five eighth inch bench chisels get, and I wouldn't be without uh, those two bench chisels in particular. So my next wouldn't be without tool is a quarter inch mortise chisel. The majority of the mortises that I make, I chop them out. Until they start to get above about a half an inch, um, I'm chopping my mortises. It's just, it's faster, it's easier. Um, when my mortises start to get above a half an inch wide, then they kind of become a chore to chop out with a chisel. Uh, that's when it becomes easier to bore the waste out first and then clean it up with a bench chisel. So, um, but if I had to only have one mortise chisel in my kit, I currently have two. If I had to have only one, uh, it would definitely be the quarter inch mortise chisel because it's the size that I use the most. So I would not be without a quarter inch mortise chisel. The seventh tool I would not be without, and I'm going to, I'm going to rattle off 10 of these here. I, I, the last show I did, uh, 10 that I didn't need. This is going to be 10 that I wouldn't be without. So the seventh one is a one and a half inch pairing chisel. Now, when I say pairing chisel, I, I put pairing in quotes because I don't mean pairing chisel in the sense of these long, you know, 15 inch, 16 inch chisels um, that you'll usually find if you Google pairing chisel. Um, I don't use those chisels. I don't like them. They're I don't really find them very useful for furniture work and cabinet work that I do. Um, they're just kind of too big and, and too unruly for me. I like a standard bench chisel size pairing chisel. So my definition of a pairing chisel is simply a chisel that I have that is um, ground and honed at a lower bevel angle that I do not hit with a mallet. I only use that chisel for pairing. And for me, that's a one and a half inch chisel. Uh, I find it to be just the right size for um, for most of the pairing tasks that I need to do. So if I need a low bevel, uh, really sharp chisel to clean something up, whether it's a, a tenon cheek or a shoulder or something like that, I'm reaching for my one and a half inch chisel. And like I said, I, I tend to ground the bevel, grind the bevel a little bit lower than my chisels that I use for chopping um, and hone it at that lower bevel so that it slices a little bit cleaner and a little bit e more easily, especially in end grain. Uh, so one and a half inch quote unquote pairing chisel uh, is what I, uh, I have on my list at number seven. At number eight, is a tri or jointer plane. So I don't have a power joiner. When I have to make straight edges or square edges, um, you know, to make panel glue ups, um, I'm using hand planes to do so. And for me, no plane does that job better than a triplane or joiner plane. You can you can kind of call them interchangeably, uh, although. Um, there is actually a difference depending on how the blade is is sharpened. But essentially, I want a long plane like that, that I can use for straightening edges. Um, if I have a really long edge, that triplane makes it very easy to get that edge nice and straight if I need to, you know, make a panel for, you know, a long tabletop or something like that. If I have 
a short board that's a little bit too short to use um, the, the plane in the traditional fashion, I can take that joiner plane and clamp it upside down in my bench vise and run the shorter board over it like you would a power joiner, stationary joining machine. Um, so that long plane really can be used um, for boards of just to joint boards of just about any size. It's it's a really versatile tool, and the length really shines and really helps me to get edges and faces flat when they need to be. So um, I personally would not be without uh, a long tri or jointer plane. Number nine would be a smoothing plane. Um, I hate sanding. We all have to do it. There's really no avoiding it. Uh, but if I can make boards, make my boards, get them ready for finish as much as possible um, and without sanding and use sandpaper as little as possible, uh, I'm going to give myself every opportunity to do so. And the smoothing plane allows me to do that. It allows me to plane boards that are maybe necessarily not perfectly flat and get them ready for sanding or scraping um, and it, it just you know it's a great small plane that I can use when my joiner or triplane is a little bit too uh, too big um, it and it's just a great all-around 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 bench plane uh, I prefer it to a block plane when I can uh, you know when I'm not forced to use the, uh, a plane one-handed um, so a smooth plane for me is is kind of a necessity the way that I work um, and it is absolutely a tool that I would not be without and the last one this one might surprise you the the tenth hand tool that I would not be without is a router plane and there are, with all the different joinery planes uh, that are out there plow planes rabbit planes uh, tongue and groove planes fenced and unfenced rabbits, moving philisters. Um, the router plane is the one tool that can do all of those operations. Um, it may not necessarily do them quite as easily as the dedicated planes, but it can certainly do them. I mean, you can, you know, you want to make a rabbit, you can mark out the extents of the rabbit with your marking gauge, remove the majority of the waste with your sash saw and your chisel and then come back with the router plane and clean it all up. You want to make a groove, same thing, mark out the extents of it with a marking gauge or, or a straight edge and your knife, remove the majority of the waste with a chisel, come back with a router plane, clean it all up. Dado, exactly the same, mark it out with a your square and your knife, remove most of the waste with a saw and chisel, come back up, clean it up with the router plane. The router plane can do so many things. Uh, it can make rabbits, it can, well, it can help you to make rabbits, it can help you to make grooves and dados. You can use it to clean up uh, the faces of tenons and pare them down to size and pare them nice and parallel with the face of the board. Uh, for me, I just would not be without the router plane. If I couldn't have any of the other joinery planes, that I do have, uh, the router plane would be my go-to for uh, helping me to make and fit all of the joinery that I like to do by hand.
So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and allowing me to do this. I'm extremely grateful for all the support that you have provided. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions, because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com htt045. In the show notes, you can find any links that I referred to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon and get your questions answered in the monthly Q&A video, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. You'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.